Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. It's been six years since Hurricane Maria struck Puerto Rico, displacing tens of thousands of people. An estimated 13,000 people came to Connecticut alone, fleeing widespread power and water outages, some of which are still being repaired. The event was the deadliest natural disaster in the U.S. in more than a century. Later in the hour, we'll hear from Dr. Charles Venator Santiago at UConn's Puerto Rican Studies Initiative and El Instituto. He's leading an effort to prepare a permanent relief center and resources in Hartford, given the increasing number of extreme weather events in Puerto Rico. But first, Puerto Rican author Esmeralda Santiago's new novel, Las Madres, explores themes of memory and loss faith, and disaster, as we follow five women as they survive and are shaped by their experience of Hurricane Maria. And joining us now is Esmeralda herself. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. And for our listeners, you are also welcome to join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Esmeralda, I want to dive right into some of the major themes here with your novel. You focus a lot about memory and the threat of forgetting, which is central to your story. Can you tell us a little bit about Luz and the way she centers this conversation for us? Thank you for that question. Yes, um, I set out to write a book about memory um, because as we get older, of course, we lose some of it. And I'm I'm very curious about what happens in that process. And in, um, in the writing, at a certain point, I asked myself, what is it like to live without memory? Uh, and what is your, how do you f- identify yourself if you don't have all the markers of your history, um, and uh, and so that's how the the rest of the book kind of evolved for me uh, with a character who um, has amnesia and has both long term and short term memory. And uh, what does that what does that mean for her and the people around her? So um, it kind of <laughs> it was a little of a side track when I first started writing the book, but at a certain point, this became the obsession for me was uh, memory and what happens when you don't have it. It's always the side things that it's the distractions that really become the gems, I feel like. So you're making me feel a little bit better about myself right now, Esmeralda. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you share with us, you know, so what happened to Luz that that stayed with her and sort of, um, her, you know, her story of informing memory and, and loss? Well, um, in the case of my main character, Luz Peña Fuentes, she was a 15-year-old girl who um, the accomplished, popular young girl, um, a ballerina, and uh, she has a um, a rather unpleasant event that then res- keeps just um, 
rolling down the hill essentially until she is uh, injured in an accident uh, in which her parents uh, die and she is or orphaned. And she has um, a stroke, several strokes during the um, her recovery from the accident itself and um, ultimately has lost her short-term memory and her long-term long memory. So she has these little episodes in which she'll remember um, things that happened in her in her life before the accident and after, uh, but uh, unfortunately she can't hold on to them, and uh, and so she uh, she'll remember something and she can't share it with other people and uh, and people around her these the other um, characters are her her caretakers her friends her the people who love her and uh, who try to make her life easier in spite of this disability that uh, could be devastating for someone um, like her, uh, it actually makes it possible for her to have a, a fairly good and comfortable life uh, surrounded by people who love her. So that's a, <laughs> a nutshell right. for her and her condition. <laughs> right. And, and you know, with her having a fantastic support system on top of that well, part of her process of remembering also involves tons and tons of journals or what you describe as her memory books you know her history and so her identity belong to others you have written and there's one moment you also describe that she thinks this is her life and at the right. same time she'll also ask is this my life can you talk more about that feeling well, there was this there was this moment. I myself had a stroke uh, a few years ago, and I had a very short period in which I was amnesiac, like Luz was. And that was one of my questions. I remember standing in front of a mirror and going, "Oh, okay, this is me." But is is this me, the person who's looking at the mirror? You know, there was this sense of of um, feeling not in any one place because when you don't have memories. Again, you don't have context, and um, and so that was that was her that was her question to herself. It was a question that I asked to myself um, soon after I had my my stroke, and it's a terrifying place to live where you are not sure uh, what is your identity, who am I, and is it me, the person in the mirror, or is it person looking at the mirror who's who's, who's me and um, and that was that was one of the um, that was one of my moments that I felt she had to experience, especially as a young girl who is still whose personality is still being formed, um, and yet still, but as an adult, she uh, she's still questioning because of her condition. So it sounds like this is literal for both you and Luz, your main character, you know, this feeling of not wanting to forget and wanting to retain your memories. And so how does this set up for a larger conversation about history, about the things that we may forget or overlook, or even how does that inform your writing process as you're, it sounds like you're telling two stories with one character? Mm -hmm. Yes, well, uh, in in Las Madres, there are many many stories actually because I'm I'm one of these writers who likes to look at just the the roundness of life in every direction, 
Um, but in the case of, of um, to answer your question about history, if we don't uh, remember, if we don't know our history again, how do we know who we are? And and yes, I was very um, def definitely determined to send a message, uh, especially to Puerto Ricans, but really to everyone, and that is that if you don't um, if you don't remember your history, if you don't learn the history, and if you don't remember it then yes, you definitely will continue to repeat it. Not only that, but it really affects everyone around you. And um, and this is something that I, I feel very strongly about, especially for those of us who come from moving from one culture to another, one country, one climate, one language group to another. It's very, uh, very important to maintain a sense of our previous history because it really does informs the present and um and it's a and a history that's forgotten is a history that um definitely will be repeated not, but not only that it will have greater repercussions <laughs> than you ever imagined and um and this is one thing that i really wanted to to put in the minds of my readers and we we want to get deeper into that, especially with with communities changing climate and culture and language. Um, but I want to come back to your novel real quick here. If you can talk about the mother daughter relationship to each other and to Puerto Rico between Luz and her daughter Marisol, because they both have very different experiences with their motherland, right? That's that's correct. So the the Las Madres is about three women who um are who have two daughters and Marisol is the daughter of Luz with with the uh, amnesiac um situation and Marisol becomes at a very early age really becomes her mother's caretaker so that now they're both grown adults and she's still having to to uh, to be her caretaker her mother, when in her moments of lucidity, um, really understands that as long as as um, she is needed um, by her daughter, her daughter is going to put her first, and it make makes her sad because as as an adult, uh, as a parent, we there's a certain point we really want our children to have their own lives and and uh, create their own lives beyond ours. And uh, so Luz definitely has a certain awareness of that, not all the time, but enough that that it is poignant for her. But for Marisol, she's also very aware that uh, as long as she's um, taking care of her mother until um, she is um, has to, you know, be with her, um, Luz cannot be left alone, for example. As long as she has that responsibility, she basically... Um, her life has a completely different color to it. Um, she cannot do certain things. She she has a a man who loves her that who wants to marry her, and she just doesn't want to burden him. And this is very much part of our culture that we're we're independent, interdependent, but we're also independent of one another. And um, and I and I really wanted to explore that in in my culture. I I imagine it's the same thing in, in many other cultures, but it's something that I've noticed so much in, in, in our Puerto Rican lives and, and then the relationship between 
the daughter really is the caretaker for the mother at a certain point, even though the mother would wish not to need to be taken care of as as um, as we are uh, as we get a little bit older and you know we we just don't want to give up that independence and yet um, it's obvious that she uh, she needs she needs that care and Marisol is willing to give it to her. Right. And I, I think there's a certain level of the interconnectedness that you can't get away from each other. You're pushing and pulling. But like you're mentioning, it's that fight between wanting to be independent and wanting your child to have their own lives. But at the same time, I need help. Um, and, yes. then, and then um, um, Marisol is willing to give that time and energy to her mother, which is really beautiful and complicated at the same time. Right. right. Uh, when it comes yes, to because you have to have a, mo- you know, you have to have a feeling about, you know, how do you feel about something like this? Well, even if you feel it, sometimes you cannot do anything about it. You can't make her better. Um, right. But all you can do is deal with the situation. And sometimes that's that's almost worse. You know, when mm. you're you don't you don't know no you don't know which way is this uh, situation, this disability, her illness, whatever we want to call it. You don't know where it's going. And so it really puts you in a a certain limbo as well, where your life, you cannot do everything that you would like to do because you do have this responsibility uh, towards someone that you adore um, and and you you want to take care of them. But on the other hand, you do have a life. how do we? How do you manage that? Right, and on top of that, you know, I've, you've you've written to how uh, the weather hurricanes are very much a part of sort of Puerto Rican memory and history, and and you writing about parts of Las Madres preserve the memory or history and the horrors of how Mer- Hurricane Maria swept over the island. And you recently spoke at an event at the Mark Twain House where there was a particular chapter that you said it was the hardest thing you've ever written in your entire life and that you wanted it to be horrible for the reader. Can you talk about why it was important for Las Madres to sort of model the act of remembering in this way? Mm. Um, Well, I think it's important because um, Hurricane Maria went through Puerto Rico six years ago and um it's it's no longer in the news and we don't think about it except for you know the puerto ricans here and the puerto ricans there are very much um very much aware and very much concerned by what's happening because uh while hurricane maria did it's it's devastation over the course of uh, a few hours in 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 a day and a half um, Hurricane Maria is still happening in Puerto Rico. People are still living with uh, tarp on their roofs, um, living in tents. There are communities that still have no electricity or running water. There are still communities that are isolated because, <clears throat> pardon me, their bridge um, bridges that came down during Hurricane Maria uh, were either not put up again or have fallen since then because there were earthquakes and then another hurricane. So these disasters um, have have had a huge impact on this very small island and they continue to affect everyone's uh, life. You know, we lose electricity every few hours and still uh, it just has not been, um, it hasn't been fixed. As we keep saying, we just want it to be fixed and it's just not fixed. Um, and I wanted people to know that it, it it wasn't just a news item, that it was something that happened and it had happened to people and that it continues to affect 
everyone's lives. Uh, the Puerto Ricans who had to leave the island uh, and are here, they can't return until their jobs are available, until the schools are open, until there is a, a, a modicum of comfort in your life. So those kinds of things, I think, should not be forgotten until it is, in fact, fixed if it ever will be, which the the fatalistic part of my Puerto Rican uh, thinking goes like, oh my God, is it ever going to happen? Um, so that's why memory is so important. We just, we, we, we can't forget it so that we can continue to do something to make things better. Well, we appreciate you being on today to help us not forget and to remember that there are rippling effects with things like this. And sadly to say that this is not the first story that we're hearing, right? And it's an ongoing conversation, very important ongoing conversation to be had. And I also want to touch on, too, in the same chapter, you also talk about the incredible sense of community and unity among Puerto Rico's people while all of this was happening. Can you talk about why it was important to have your protagonists, Las Madres, to actually be visitors to this territory from mainland USA versus having the locals sort of watch this unfold and observing this sense of resilience from that perspective? Um, I really felt that it was important uh, for them to see Puerto Rico not as a person who lives there, because when, you, when you're surrounded by your culture and your environment, you almost take it for granted. You just, you know, it's just there. You know, your life is there. And unless you are a poet or a very observant person who pays attention to these things, we just really live our lives in our environment. But uh, when you are a visitor to a place, you're seeing things uh, differently. You see it for, with different eyes, um, you know, the, the sounds become important, uh, you, all this, all this aspect of being a stranger in a strange land, even though it's a place that you call home, um, it does bring a lot of questions to to the visitor that the uh, the local population doesn't have necessarily. And so that was why I thought it was important for them to come to, to be very, very, very Puerto Rican in their lives in the United States. But being Puerto Rican in Puerto Rico is a, uh, a slightly different um, way of, of living and, and, and the way that you you view your your little universe, whatever it may be. So that was one of the main reasons that uh, I wanted them to be um, for it for it to seem new to them. Even though uh, several of them, uh, two of the las madres and uh, one of the uh, daughters, have spent a lot of time in Puerto Rico, um, you still always see it uh, with new eyes when you when you go back, even if it's only been a few weeks. Right. No, I love that. And I think that would resonate with a lot of people that have had you know, similar experiences changing the climates and then and going back to your motherland or vice versa. Right. Having heard stories about it and then having the chance to go back. I'm sure that's a very different yeah. experience, but also universal experience for for many people. And on that note, too, I will love to talk about the coda and acknowledgement section that you have, which has some very incredible musings from you on the very short distance between your fiction and the reality of what happened and has changed since Hurricane Maria on the island. Love for you to read an excerpt from that. Thank you. Yes, I will be happy to read from, uh, this is from page 319, and it's from the Coda. Um, and um, this is me. As a Puerto Rican who lives in the United States, I ache for the place where I was born and its people here and there, 
I rage at the laws that force us to live as subjects of a government that refuses to acknowledge Puerto Rico is a colony and treats its people with disdain as second-class citizens, even though it was their idea, not ours, that we be born, live, fight for, and die with the U.S. flag over our heads. It's difficult for me to write about Puerto Rico and its people without sentimientos, even as I resist sentimentality. Controlling my emotions is a survival mechanism built over decades of wrestling with being a Puerto Rican, fulfilling my responsibilities and obligations as a citizen, while simultaneously chafing at the yoke forced upon me by a history made by men across an ocean. There are times when I dread the news from the Puerto Rican archipelago, overwhelmed by the challenges my people must endure just to live in the place we call home. Even if we've never visited our island, it is nuestra patria we love and long for. To be a Puerto Rican wherever we are is to fret over the uncertainty of often violent weather, natural forces, and repressive political directives that have shaped us for more than 500 years of colonization by Spain and the United States. Resistance has been constant and consistent, but unlike the other islands in the greater Antilles, we've been unsuccessful in our revolutionary efforts. But one thing that's true about Puerto Ricans, we do not give up. Nosotros no nos rendimos. For that, I am grateful. It is the struggle for self-determination that has shaped me as a woman and as a writer. You've been listening to Esmeralda Santiago, who has written a trio of memoirs, including the 1993 book, When I Was Puerto Rican, and her most recent novel is Las Madres. She'll be staying with us, and we'll be continuing this conversation after a quick break. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're joined by Puerto Rican author Esmeralda Santiago. Her new novel, Las Madres, explores themes of memory and loss, 
faith and disaster as we follow five women as they survive and are shaped by their experience of Hurricane Maria. And we're back with Esmeralda. We'll love to jump back straight to our conversation. You've spoken before about your choice to write in English and to share specific stories of Puerto Rico to confront what can be reductive coverage in the U.S. Esmeralda, can you talk more about the importance of specificity when it comes to storytelling? Um, I I write in English um, because I left uh, Puerto Rico when I was 13 years old and the rest of my education happened in the United States in English. And um, when it came to a point in my life when I realized, oh, writing, this is what I want to do, uh, I realized that my Spanish was just not as well developed as my English um, language was. Uh, in addition to that, my editors have always been um, Anglophones uh, who speak other languages, but not Spanish. And so I could not have um, the, the the perfect conversation, let's put it, with, with an editor. Um, but also, I, I just came to a certain point in my life, I realized my vocabulary in English is so much better than it is in, in Spanish. Uh, what it does for me is that um, I still feel as if I am translating from the Spanish, my characters, I'm, I'm writing in English about them, they're speaking in English in the books, but in fact, I try to remind the reader every once in a while that they're speaking Spanish to one another, uh, because it's very important for me to, um, to convey to the reader that in fact, this, um, this is, a different language from the one that they expected from somebody named Graciela <laughs> or Ada. Um, there's also something about, you know, this is what I've read most of my adult life has been the uh, the great literature in, in, in English. I've read some of it in Spanish. And it is daunting for me to to try to write anything remotely um, as sophisticated as uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez or any of the other great um, uh, Spanish language writers. I miss I miss writing in Spanish, but um, every time I try, I realize oh, it's just it's just not there for me. Maybe so it, maybe your lost. next one. Yeah, no, I do. I do love the nuances and the reminders of of the characters and and how you know it's Spanish. You know, English is not the native language per se. And and on that note, there is a moment in Las Madres where it really stood out to me because one of the characters practically cornered a reporter and a videographer to listen to the people at the hospital when they're calling you know, their loved ones' names or they're, they're sort of shouting that, oh, we fought in Vietnam or we fought in these wars. Can you tell us about this moment and why was it important to sort of present that? It was very important to me to, uh, again, bring the readers into the situation that was uh, taking place with the people in Puerto Rico at that time. And one of the things that I did notice uh, was that the media was there, but a lot of the um, reporters were there, did not speak Spanish. I'm sure that the uh, the television stations and the other outlets just sent the person that was available. Who knows? I don't know how they did it, but... That was one of the things that really surprised me. That how can you how can you ask the local people what's happened in their lives if you don't speak their language? Um, and this is why 
I thought it was very important that that um, Marisol kind of address the uh, U.S. American people. She knew that these this uh, television station network um, would would be disseminated all over the United States, and so she spoke in English and she said, "This is what's happening." But at the same time, the people around her did not understand. Uh, what was being said, and all they can do is call out their name so that they would be remembered and so that people in the United States and other places would know that they survived, that they're there. Um, again, you know, for me, I, I don't think of Hurricane Maria and, in fact, any of these disasters as just simply historical events. They are things that happened to people and there's a lot of emotion that's still, you know, it, it's just, it's in the air in Puerto Rico. You just know there's a, a certain sadness at the same time as there's this constant striving to make things better. And um, and this is part of our culture. I think it was important for people to know that there are names connected to the word um, refugees or to the word victim or the people who who were um, affected by the event. And as you're describing that, it it was it came to me that, yeah, you're right. This is not just a single event that happened from this time to this time. This is something that's still ongoing, hence us still having this conversation and will continue to have this conversation. And you, you know, this novel is about memory and and fighting to keep that. But it also struck me that it's very much about language too. It feels like and and history. So because you also noted at the Mark Twain House event that this book was a way of honoring the ways your father was affected by the San Felipe Segundo hurricane of 1928, and that the book was dedicated to the Puerto Rican people. Can you talk more about these dedications, especially in particular with your father? Well, my, my dad, um, in the last few years of uh, my parents' lives, I interviewed both of them for just information about their lives before I was born, um, because I'm curious. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's a funny thing that we children uh, don't often ask our parents about their lives, but I was very curious. And I remember uh, at one particular situation where I asked him, uh, I had read a little bit about Hurricane San Felipe Segundo in 1928, and I remembered he was about eight or nine years old when, when the hurricane went through. I asked him, do you remember anything about it? And he became, he was, by, this, by the time that I asked him, he was probably in his 90s already. He just became this terrified little boy in the middle of a hurricane. And as he just, he's describing what's happening around him and, and all the preparations that the parents had to do and his brothers and sisters running around, he was the youngest in, in a family of 11. Um, I was very struck by the fact that he had carried this trauma of this event, of this historical event um, still into his 90s and it was still very much affecting him and um and so that i think that's where the idea of writing about a hurricane event came to me uh, as a writer without realizing that a few years later in fact there would be a even more devastating hurricane happening in puerto rico and and that there's going to be generations of men, women, children who are going to be carrying this for the rest of their lives because it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. So many 
relatives who died right in front of them or soon after. These kinds of things uh, stay with you. And um, and it's it's sad to imagine that that you know you would carry that that burden that trauma, but on the other hand, I was so glad to hear my dad telling me in a very emotional way um, what took place because I, I it it brought me back to realizing oh yeah again history is not just something that happens it's something that we create that we make happen and it's it's. It's people who make it happen. And um, and he taught me that by telling me that very, very emotional story of, of the hurricane that he experienced. Well, and with, with what you just described, too, it just I think that really demonstrates what an extraordinary impact his memory has, you know, talking about memory. And, and now you're able to sort of keep that with you and tell the stories. And now we are creating memories together with this conversation about what happened and keeping this going. And... With the chats that you've had and and the stories that you've heard, can you also share with us a glimpse into you know any research you might have done for this book, especially when you're looking more deeply into Hurricane Maria or even with your father's experience? Yes, I I talk to a lot of people that uh, you know I have a lot of uh, family and friends still living uh, in Puerto Rico, and so as soon as there was any communication at all, um, I I you know asked them and and I I kept notes not not right in front of them but but I did uh, talk to them there were um of course there was a lot of information um on uh, on social media people were writing about their experiences uh, there were several blogs many blogs that I found uh, in which people gave testimony to their experience uh, some of the Puer- uh, Puerto Rican authors wrote essays and short stories and uh, short novels uh, about the experience. And I was very surprised at how many people who do- didn't consider themselves writers, who had never written anything other than their experience about Hurricane Maria, and all of a sudden, these uh, self-published books appear in my feeds, and they are by just just a regular person who experienced, who never ever imagined that they would be a writer and writing about it. And uh, and those um, those were also very, very important to me because they're very raw. You know, when, when you're a professional writer, you kind of hone your language. Right. You know, but when you are just writing about an experience, it's much more emotional. And and um, and so I found it I found them incredibly helpful. Um, but I just spent as much time as I could reading about it, seeing it, seeking uh, information online. I, of course, have been to Puerto Rico many times since then, and I saw it firsthand. And um, and I every single story that was told to me. I always accepted it as this is the true story. I never questioned that anyone would make up a story about something like that um, just to tell it. I think people really needed to talk about it. And, you know, you said earlier that you didn't really set out knowing that this is what you're going to do. This is the story you're going to tell. So we'd love to know, you know, what has the response to your book been so far? 
So far, the book is doing it. You know, it's got a little bit of a slow start. I think, like all um, great things, I think, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think the book was published uh, on August first, and then this is Hispanic Heritage Month, so people are rediscovering uh, Latine writers, and so I am among them. Uh, and so the book is doing really well. I'm very, I'm very uh, pleased by the response, not only in the. Um, in the community that I come from, from Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans, but that it, the book is being read in book clubs all over the United States and other places in the world, because people um, are curious about the many situations that I um, that I write about here. People who are worried about climate change are very interested in reading what happens on the ground with an event like this. And um, and so I think it's getting it's being discovered. <laughs> and I hope that it continues because I, I really my effort was to bring you a portrait of a of the Puerto Rican people in the middle of a crisis and how do they handle it? And I don't think that the media really did a really very thorough job of describing who we were at that time. And uh, of course, the language was an issue for them, but also because the communications were so broken. Um, so I, I really wanted to to make sure that readers um, didn't have to be Puerto Rican to read about this, that they could see the, the human aspect of it and the human toll of these kinds of events that are happening actually in the most surprising and far-flung places. Well, I got about 30 more seconds here. So of course, I'm going to ask you about your philosophy, but any final thoughts that you would like our listeners or readers to know, or just something you want to share with them? I really do want your readers to try and look for this. Um, it's Hispanic Heritage Month. Look for books by Latine authors because we are writing a fantastic uh, literature right now that is important. It's necessary. And I know you're going to learn a lot about yourself as well as about us. Here, here for that. You've been listening to acclaimed Puerto Rican author Esmeralda Santiago. Thank you so much, Esmeralda, for sharing your story and your experiences with us this morning. Thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of the day and week. Right back at you. After the break, we hear about efforts to establish more permanent hurricane relief resources around where we live. You can join the conversation too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We just heard from acclaimed author Esmeralda Santiago about her new book, Las Madres, which is partially set during and later woven through with the aftermath and memory of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico in 2017. Researchers say an estimated 13,000 people came to Connecticut from Puerto Rico in the year that followed. And in Hartford, there was a one-stop welcome center put together quickly by a group of nonprofits, including the Capital Region Education Council, or CREC, where they pulled resources and agencies that could help people settle in. Now, the Hispanic Health Council is working on a more permanent resource that can mobilize to meet various needs, and in the case of another extreme weather event or related migrant crisis. And joining me now to discuss his research and help on this project is Dr. Charles Venator Santiago. He's an associate professor and faculty director of the Puerto Rican Studies Initiative at the University of Connecticut. And he is also the director of El Instituto, Institute of Latino, Caribbean, and Latin American Studies. Thank you so much, Charles, for joining us this morning. Thank you. And a quick reminder for our listeners, you can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Charles, you were actually on Where We Live. And at that point, it was three years to the day from Maria as Fiona had just hit Puerto Rico. Can you tell us about this work you're doing with the Hispanic Health Council on their new wellness center, as well as your vision for that? So, yes. So my work on this topic began right after Hurricane Maria when the Heart Foundation uh, gave us funding, the Center for Puerto Rican Studies and my and El Instituto, to study the situation of or the arrival of Puerto Ricans and the challenges that it presented for Hartford and for Connecticut, but mostly focused on the uh, greater Hartford region. As a result of that report, we were asked to write another report or analyze the situation in Holyoke, Massachusetts, where we essentially applied uh, sort of our knowledge from the experience of Hartford to understand and evaluate the challenges that the uh, city of Holyoke faced uh, during that period of time. One of the key conclusions that we raised is that we need to create an effective resource center, welcome center, if you will, or a place where people can arrive and, uh, and gain access to all services, not just for a short period of time, but for a consistent period of time after the event happens and uh, an ongoing uh, for an ongoing period. Um, I've begun to work with the Hispanic Health Council, uh, mostly uh, in the, uh, as a result of my work with the Puerto Rican Studies Initiative, to provide some support whenever we can. Um, but the Hispanic Health Council is building a, or built already a wellness center, an excellent wellness center that could potentially serve, and there have been some conversations on this issue, as a resource center that can address some of these issues, because they're better equipped to address these issues uh, in a wider sense of the word. They have access to health services that have access to dental service, mental health, and a whole bunch of other resources that are already located in Mikasa in Park Street. And so we actually have a link to some of that research on our website for our listeners to check out at ctpublic.org slash where we live. And so, Charles, you mentioned that there's sort of this tick list of resources that you're suggesting. And you just mentioned, you know, health, dental health. What other uh, resources are important to include on this list, Charles? So one of the things that we learned from the experience of Maria is that sometimes people are displaced and they have nothing. They don't have an address. They don't have bank accounts. They don't have ability for to 
to communicate. I mean, there's a range of things. What we've learned is that when a person arrives at one of these places, there's a need for obviously mental health and medical services. There's a need for education in the event that some person is displaced and has uh, or brings with him or her a child. Uh, there's a need for food in some instances. There's a need for housing. There's a need to have contacts with government agencies, direct contact, and somebody to help mediate this access. Because in most instances, uh, an individual may be uh, arriving to uh, to a city, say in the case of Hartford, and maybe planning to stay here for an indefinite amount of time. In other instances, even though they're temporary, seeking temporary shelter, they still need access to these resources. So having one place, sort of like a wellness center or, or a welcome center that can double up as both a welcome center and a future emergency center uh, would be great because it releases the state also from a lot of responsibilities uh, of creating an emergency center for an event that happened outside of the state. And with what you're saying, too, I want to talk about telecommunications, which is also a really big deal during extreme weather events in Puerto Rico. Can you talk about the accessibility of that? So one of the, we have two major infrastructural challenges in Puerto Rico. One is the power grid. It's an outdated power grid that is collapsing uh, and is being held essentially by band-aids. So once a extreme weather event or climate event hits Puerto Rico, it is likely that the whole great grid will stop. And that's what happened in 2017. Uh, and that paralyzes a lot of the communications with the United States or elsewhere. Uh, the second issue that we notice is that once the the grid stops and telecommunications are, are sort of lowered, the government usually takes some of the bandwidth to give access to emergency personnel to communicate. Uh, so you have a limited, uh, based on our experience, a limited access to telecommunications. Now, what we learned from Maria and other events is that people need to communicate to figure out whether their loved ones are safe, to send resources, to plan trips. And one alternative that's emerged is the idea of uh, satellite telecommunications, where you can create hubs in anywhere around the world and connect them using satellite communications to hubs in Puerto Rico. We are in the process, we're having conversations to figure out whether we can have some of those hubs here in, in Hartford uh, that can communicate directly to Puerto Rico. And we've been in communication with the Caribbean Preparation and Response Initiative or nonprofit. Uh, because they have the expertise to do this kind of work. But the idea is that we could be in a position where we could facilitate communication, not just between people, but also agencies and government officials to government officials through satellite communications. Right. And with the, those conversations being ongoing, and as you're doing more research, creating these resources and finding more of these resources, have you found municipalities are more receptive to these sort of plans, especially given the increasing prevalence of extreme weather events? It's a hit or miss in the case of Puerto Rico. Uh, some municipalities understand that this is a necessity, uh, but other municipalities are still dependent on funding and they have their particular arrangements with the private sector or government. So it's a mixed bag in, in the municipalities in Puerto Rico. But those who are willing to work uh, uh, on these kinds of projects value the need for communication uh, because it's just it, it opens up the possibility of getting more resources, not only within the island, but also between the island and the United States or elsewhere. And obviously, where things stand federally have a huge impact on how states might have to respond, which I assume also filters down to the municipalities. Can you talk about that? Well, this is an interesting case. One of the things that happened during Reagan's sort of federalist revolution 
was that the federal government decided to uh, displace resources or, or responsibility to states and localities. That is, if there's an event, then the expectation is that localities and states who presumably know more about how to respond to these issues will take the lead. And the federal government in some ways is ill-equipped uh, by purpose from responding to these sort of crises. There is FEMA and there are other agencies that can that are that are great at responding and have the resources, but there's been an, an effort to dismantle the idea that the federal government could be a primary in, uh, respondent. Uh, and then states which may or may not have the capabilities, the resources, the expertise are now sort of responding to some of these uh, situations. And that applies also to Puerto Rico. There's an expectation that the government of Puerto Rico is going to assume a leadership role in responding, even though it may not have the expertise or the resources to address these issues. So, so this opens the door for localities to have better communication, to have a better understanding of a climate event or a crisis in Puerto Rico at a local level. And so this resource, this research we've been discussing is also part of a huge data hub that you're building. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So yeah, last year we received funding from the General Assembly, Connecticut General Assembly, to create a Puerto Rican Studies initiative that would allow us to collect data, to engage in oral histories and, and preserve memories of civic leaders and community leaders, uh, and to essentially create a series of archives that can not only help us to address sort of crisis of population shift that may be created by a climate event, but also to start documenting the history of Puerto Ricans in the state of Connecticut uh, with the expertise that we can gain at places like the University of Connecticut. And Charles, you plan to share some of this data with the Connecticut General Assembly this winter prior to the next legislative session, is that right? Yes, uh, we are in conversations to organize a meeting in December, hopefully December 16th, uh, where we're gonna invite all elected officials to start having conversations around a Puerto Rican Latino agenda in the state of Connecticut. We haven't invited them yet, but we're working on, on organizing this. We've already approached some legislators. Well, good luck with organizing that. I know that's a big feat, so all the best luck to you. Uh, you've been listening to Dr. Charles Venator Santiago, who is an associate professor and faculty director of the Puerto Rican Studies Initiative at the University of Connecticut, and he is also the director of El Instituto, Institute of Latino, Caribbean, and Latin American Studies. Thank you so much, Charles, for being with us this morning. Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.